I remember the day, the one time, no, that I remember the day it happened very clearly. I was sitting in my ninth grade class and the secretary came in and whispered something to the teacher and the teacher said, Jacob, you need to come with Mrs. Davis to the principal's office. Although I was a believer, I was not a perfect child, Okay, uh, contrary to popular belief. The principal and I sat down and he said, Mr. Elwert, how could you have done this? What were you thinking? He questioned me for, like this for several minutes and I had nothing to say. He, I mean, I was guilty. He said, I am very disappointed in you. Well, my parents picked me up early that day. We had a midnight blue 15-passenger van. They were in the front seats and I was in the seat just behind them. And I remember the trip home. It seemed like an eternity. There was no radio on. It was completely silent. All we could hear was the sounds coming from the road. And I was just dying for someone to break the silence with with my punishment or, or something. Just get it over with. I, d- I don't want to think about this anymore. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. I couldn't imagine what they were going to do to me. I was just thinking, what, what is going to be my punishment? Are they going to spank me till I'm black and blue? Are they going to punish me for a year uh, by keeping me from sports and video games? What, what was going to be my punishment? maybe withhold meals from me or put me up for adoption. I didn't know. I just wanted to find out what it was so that I could I could get it over with. Well, if there was one time where I wanted to go back and, and uh, rewrite history, it was that time. But unfortunately, we cannot do that. Well, my dad uh, told me that we were going to have to go back to the office where he worked and uh, I was going to have to help him out for the rest of the afternoon. And between patients, he pulled me aside into a quiet room, and this was it, the moment of doom. The the hammer was coming down. And instead of wrath and frustration and severe punishment, he came to me with mercy. Mercy. In a, in a quiet, gentle voice, he said, Jacob, you and I both know that what you did was wrong. But I understand. And I, I know that you know that you should not, never do this again. And I asked for his forgiveness. And it was over. He said, you know what? Don't let it happen again. And not... Another time in either my mom's or my dad's life did they ever bring it up again. It was over. I was completely forgiven. I mean, obviously I had to, to make amends with, with other people and with God, certainly, but, but as far as my parents were concerned, it was over. J.K. Chesterton once said, I like getting in hot water. It keeps me clean. And you know, there is a spiritual sense in which that is true, where, where it's good to be in hot water. Now, now we shouldn't, okay, we shouldn't uh, sin in order to get into that position, but, but there is a good sense in which we should be in a place where we recognize the, the deserving punishment that, that we have, that we have coming to us, and think about ourselves in light of it. 
that, that as sinners, we are constantly dirtied by sin. And if we don't consider the full weight of wrath that, that we deserve, then, then we will live our lives as Christians complacently, lazily, without much fervor for God and His Word. But if we come into the point where we are, are put into hot water, where we recognize that there could be doom ahead for me because of what I've done, or at least consider what could have happened if, if God had not saved us. We'll talk about that more as we go. But, but the point is, even though we are forgiven and, and justified, we are constantly in need of this cleansing that comes through Jesus Christ. That's what John talks about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To, to take us out of hot water. You see, we ought to be people who are constantly living like we talked about in light of the Gospel like we talked about this morning. It's good to frequently consider our, ourselves and our sin before a holy, righteous, perfect, judging God. And think about ourselves in terms of, of God. Acknowledge it as sin and defiance and and think about what we deserve in light of it. And then think about what we receive instead. The forgiveness of Jesus. And that should give us great comfort and hope and joy. The people of Judah and Zechariah find themselves in a similar situation. They and their fathers had sinned against God. They had turned from God. And they had experienced some very difficult times. And yet, God was going to restore them to His favor. But what He wanted to do was for them to recognize their sin, acknowledge it, turn from it, and, and, and be cleaned. Have a, a, a clean slate. And so we'll begin this evening by reading the first six verses of chapter 1 in Zechariah. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. For they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so He has dealt with us. Zechariah begins with a, an appeal to the people to return to God. Come back to God. This is where you belong. Verse 3, Return to Me that I re might return to you. It's, it's a theme that, that comes up often in the, proverb, in, in the prophets. That is, don't blame it on God. Well, you know, God's far away and He must not care about me. That's why all these bad things are happening to me. We need to return to God. That was, that was the point that Zechariah was telling the people. And the same sort of truth pops up in James chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. Listen as I read. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to, to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. There is a sense in which we need to draw near to God. That that we have a responsibility on our part to to draw near to God, to to return to Him as Zechariah says. And he gives in verses 4-6 through a negative example of the former generations. Your fathers, this is what they did. They were so caught up in their evil deeds. And, and if you want to avoid learning the hard way like they did and receiving my disfavor, then you need to return to me. Repent of your sins and turn back to me. And then I will restore favor. And so what he does over the next several chapters is he gives us eight pictures of necessary obedience. He shows... Uh, give some visions to Zechariah to help him to see what God is doing for the people of Judah. And so what I want you to look at as we go through each of these is, is what God is doing among the people. What kind of things has He promised him, these people? And then how do those apply to us? Now, we are not Israel, so these promises are not directly for us, but there are parallels in the New Testament. And we'll talk about those as we go. But what I want you to think about is how God is dealing with His people in each of these visions. Alright, picture number one. And basically, let me just kind of explain how these are set up. There's, there's eight visions. Each one is set up. It begins with a vision. Okay, something that Zechariah sees. So, so imagine this is a, a daydream or, or even a dream for you. It's a vision. It's something that's unclear. Uh, the picture's clear, but it's unclear what it all means. And so... It goes from a vision at the beginning to a question. Zechariah usually asks, and you'll see this, what are these things? What does this mean? Okay, so he asks the question, and then the angel of the Lord gives an explanation. Okay, so that's basically the way all these visions are set up, so that's how we'll break them down. Let's look at the first one. A vision, the vision is seen in verses 7 and 8. On the, 12th, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. So here's the vision. A man among trees. Now, even if you are a Bible scholar, it's difficult to tell what that is. So, Zechariah, not understanding, says at the beginning of verse 9, he asks the question. See that? Then I said, My Lord, what are these? Good question, because we don't know what they are either. So he explains. Notice the end of verse 9. And the angel who was speaking with him said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord have sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So this man among the, the trees is really the sovereign God among the people of Judah. 
And He was ready to intervene for them. He's saying, listen, this is a promise. You see this man among the trees? You're going to see God among you. He's going to, to, uh, to, to be there for you. And then uh, Zechariah has this corresponding vision in verses 14 through 17. In verse 14, he talks about the angel of the Lord being jealous for the people of Jerusalem. Verse 15, about God's anger against their enemies. Verses 16 and 17, about God's devotion to Jerusalem. And so we have the first vision, a man among trees. The second picture or vision is four horns, found in verse 18. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. And then we have the question, verse 19. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And then the explanation, verses 19-21. through 21. And he answered me, these are horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nation who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Okay, so really, we have the explanation of the four horns um, at the end of verse 19. These are the horns which have scattered Judah. And these four horns are probably referring to the four points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. Okay, saying basically you have enemies from all different points of the compass and all these nations have had an, a hand in your downfall, Judah. But now that's going to be reversed. That's why he talks about the craftsmen in verses 20 and 21. And these four craftsmen now come and, and destroy these four horns. And these four craftsmen, it's really unclear what these are, but we do know that the craftsmen will come and destroy the nations that sent Judah into exile. And so the overall point is simply this. God is going on the attack against Judah's enemies. That's it. Okay, that's what the four horns, uh, that's what the vision of the four horns is supposed to do. Encourage these people that, that God's going on the attack for you. Okay, so first we saw in the man with the trees that God is among you. And then second, we see that God is your protector or your avenger. All right, third, chapter 2 shows us the third vision, and that is a measuring man, verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then the question, so I said, where are you going? And then the explanation. And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out. And another angel was coming out to meet me. And he said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. The point of this one is that you, you see that in verse 4, that this devastated Jerusalem will once be restored. Now think about where Judah is at this time. They're only a few years removed from being taken into captivity. Their city, Jerusalem, is completely destroyed. And they come back to it, and God gives them this promise. It begins with, I'm going to be among you. Secondly, I'm going to be your avenger. Now, I'm going to, to restore this city. I'm going to restore it for you. And in fact, there will be a day when, verse 4 says, 
It will be inhabited without walls. It will be inhabited without walls. The idea there, think about what walls were used for in that day. They were used for protection, right? It was to fortify a city. Think about Jericho in in the book of Joshua, the most fortified city in, in the land of Canaan. And it was up on a mountain and then it was walled. So it would be very difficult to get through and, and to attack the people of Jericho. And so now what God is saying is there will become a day, Jerusalem, when you will need no walls. And that is because I am going to make the people around you at peace with you. Now what we know from the rest of Scripture is that's referring to a day that's coming even for us. The, the day that is still future. Where Jerusalem will be... Uh, at the center of what God is doing in the millennial reign, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. And at that time, the city will be without walls. There will be no fear of, of coming uh, oppressors or, or enemies. And so the measuring line that this, this man we see in verse 1, he, basically he's there to measure the walls, to, 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 to get, get on with the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the point here is that God will save Jerusalem. He will restore them. The corresponding vision is found in verses 6 through 10, and it talks about the people there being the apple of God's eye, verse 8, that they are at the center of what God is doing. I mean, think about that statement. See that at the end of verse 8. That, that, that Israel is a group of people who are the apple of God's eye. They're at the very center of, of what He takes joy in. And do you realize now that because of your relationship with Christ, that, that you are the same way? That you are, you as the, the local church, okay, the church, Christ's body, are the thing that makes God's eye gleam, makes Him excited. Because that is where his joy is found in glorifying himself through his church. I want you to notice verses 10 and 11 because we have a profound promise here to the people of Judah. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Do you notice what was repeated there in those two word, two verses? I will dwell in your midst. Think of it. God, who is completely perfect, without sin, hates sin, and yet He longs for the day when He will be able to dwell among His people. When He will be able to dwell among the, the people who have, have opposed Him for years. I mean, what a, an amazing thought. And this, is, this should be our response. The same response that, that, uh, that is given here in verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. In light of God's glorious revelation that He will be among His people Okay, the first vision, that He will be the avenger of His people and that now He will rebuild and, and, and come to a place where He will be among His people, that He will live among them. 
In light of that, the response should be this. Quiet reverence. Simply a hushed awe of God. An amazement at His, at His grace. And if this is the case for uh, the people of Israel who have returned from exile, how much more should it be for us? How much more should our response to be, be to God at times a, a hushed silence at His greatness and at His mercy toward us? Think about the achievements that Christ has made with you with regard to the Gospel. And that should cause you to simply stop and reflect on your God. In our society, that's not easy to do, is it? Because we live in a busy society. We have some sort of mass media everywhere we go. There's billboards, there's radio in your car, there's TV when you're at the house. There's always something popping out at you and talking to you in some way. And so in our society, it's hard to just stop and be quiet. It's hard for us to just flush everything out and just think. And I think that's helpful to do at times, to just stop and think about the grace of God and salvation. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. Number four, it's found in chapter 3, and this is the vision of the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Alright? And then we have the explanation. No question here. Um, But verse 2 gives the explanation. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is that not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Joshua here in verse 3, we see this is Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest at the time of Judah. Okay, um, Joshua here... It, has filthy clothes on in verse 3. The idea here is that, that he, this filth is a sign of guilt. And the second part of verse 4 makes that clear. It says, again, he said to him, see, I have taken your, he doesn't say your dirty clothes off, he says your iniquity. So that's what the, the filthy clothes represent. It represents his sin. So, so Joshua is a high priest standing in for the people. But how, as a sinner himself, can he be an effective high priest? If he's going to make atonement on behalf of other people for their sin, how can he when he's sinful himself? See? The implication here is that that Joshua must walk in God's ways and keep his requirements. Verse 7. So so Joshua, in verse 8, is recommissioned. Notice what it says here in verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it. 
declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Joshua is giving, given a new, uh, a new mission. But, but the vision says much more. Joshua and his associates in verse 8 are called men who are a symbol or literally men of good omen. Or as the New American or New International Version says, men symbolic of things to come. So, so think about all the priests in the past leading up to Joshua, and all the priests leading up to Jesus. Okay, not including Jesus. And then think about this phrase here: men who are a symbol, who are symbolic of things to come. What are they a symbol for? Notice the end of the verse. I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Okay, and if you have a New American Standard, you have those uh, the word branch in capital letters, meaning it refers to whom? The Messiah, right? Who would later be called Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. And we'll talk about this branch more when we get to six chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, but the point is is that Joshua, you and all the priests are not adequate to provide atonement for the sin of the people. We need a perfect high priest. And, and so really, you just act as a symbol of what is to come. And so all your filthy clothes that you come in with because of your own sin, you're taking off and you're putting on clean clothes, which means God's granting him forgiveness and allowing Him to act in that priestly role. But see, Jesus doesn't do it in that way, does He? He doesn't come with the sin of Himself and then be able to act as high priest. How does He do it? He does have filthy clothes on. You know why? Because it's all our sin. Right? All of our sin is on Christ and God takes off the filthy clothes off of Him or takes it off of us, places it on Christ so that He can be fully uh, cleaned before um, he, he acts as high priest for us. And so living this side of the cross, we have no doubt who the ultimate high priest is and who fully bore our sin in his own body on the tree, as Second Peter, 1 Peter 2.24 says. The high priests were simply symbols of the ultimate high priest. And so now we have an even greater promise. Okay, God is is ready to act. He's among you. God is is uh, is going to bring you out of, of this place where you're at. He's going to rebuild the city. And now He's going to provide you with a high priest. And then the fifth picture is found in chapter 4. And that is the vision of the golden lampstand with olive trees. We see the vision in verses 1-3. through three. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see the... And behold, a lampstand and all, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also, two olive trees by it. One on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Okay, then we have the question, verse 4. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And then the explanation in verses 5-8. through eight. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, 
do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace. Grace, grace to it. So we have this picture of the golden lampstands. I'm sorry, I said five through eight. It's actually five through ten is the explanation. And what we know from verse six is that the oil that's coming from the lampstand is the word of the Lord. Okay, it says it's the word of the Lord that came to Zerubbabel, and it will be what feeds the people of Israel. Now, there's a question that comes up about the olive trees because you have both the golden lampstands and the olive trees in the middle. Verses 11 and 12 help us to explain that. Verse 11, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So the, the two olive trees in verse 14 are explained by the angel of the Lord to be two anointed ones. Now in the historical context, it seems to be that the two anointed ones are these two leaders of Judah, which are Zerubbabel, who is the governor of Judah, and then Joshua, the Davidic, uh, uh, or not the Davidic prince, but the, the priest at the time the one who rebuilds the temple and the one who offers sacrifices to the temple. So we have both Zerubbabel and Joshua. These are the two anointed ones. But what they didn't understand at this time and what we now understand when we look at the book of Revelation is that, or or really, we look at the life of Christ is that these two anointed ones, one who would be a leader, a Davidic king and a high priest, They're thinking of two people. But amazingly, God combined them in one, right? Jesus Christ would take up both of those offices. He would come in the line of David as king, rightfully sit on the throne of David, and he would also be the high priest. And so what you find in the Old Testament is that 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 the kings in the Old Testament were never perfect, were they? You see them with all of their flaws. And there was never a time where a king was perfect. In fact, you can find genealogies where kings are listed. You look at Matthew and, and others where it talks about these people lived for a certain amount of years and then they died. They lived for a certain amount of years and then they died. And the point is, is that none of them are adequate to fulfill that that long-term, eternal, kingly role. And so you're always looking for more. And in that sense, that's why the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. You see? It points to Christ because we're looking for a better king. All those other high priests, they were ungodly at times. and they, They didn't cut it. And you always had to keep bringing sacrifices over and over and over again, but with Christ, it's just one and done. And so the Old Testament talks about this this inadequate Davidic king, 
this inadequate high priest and really inadequate prophets as well because they all at some point die. But not Jesus. See, He would fulfill all three of those roles, be prophet, priest, and king. And, and that's why we can say that the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ because that's what, what we're longing for. We're longing for someone who will come and, and like that book of Hebrews talks about, fulfill those roles for us. The sixth picture is found in chapter 5, verses 1-4. through four. It's the flying scroll. We see the vision in verses 1 and 2. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. The explanation is found in verses 3 through 4. Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. The scroll represents the whole law. These are God's words. They are written on both sides. They have the power to accomplish God's purposes. They, they, on one side, allow for purging of the whole land, and on the other side, um, uh, purging of those who have, who have disobeyed the law that, that is written on it. So what God is saying is that there's going to be a curse on those who reject the law and the covenant. So now, Judah, see all these laws that I've put into place for you so that you could be a special chosen people? I'm going to, there is going to come a day when I immediately and swiftly purge out the covenant breakers. And do you know when that day will be? Not now. Not back then. It's in the millennium. In the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And by the way, there will be some people who are inwardly rebelling against God. People who have come in, uh, perhaps from the millennium, that, that survived the... Not the millennium, the, uh, the uh, seven years, the tribulation. They come in from the tribulation still living, pretending as if they are a child of God and inwardly rebelling against God. But once they outwardly rebel against God, there will be swift justice coming down on them. By the way, that all of the church saints, we who, who have been taken up and removed from the tribulation will be brought back down to live on this earth with Jesus as King on David's throne in Jerusalem. And we will live there for a thousand years. So God intended to purge this community of covenant breakers. And, and so what God is doing is He's purifying His people. Do you see? so that He can now come and live among them. Because He is holy, He cannot live with sin. And so it looks forward to a day when there will be this millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the flying scroll, the sixth picture or vision. And then the seventh one is found in chapter 5, verses 5-11. through 11. We see the vision in verse 5. Then the angel who was speaking to me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. So all we know about it at this point is that it's something going forth. So we have a question. I said, what is it? 
And then we have an explanation. He said, this is the ephah going forth. Okay, so now we have a little bit more. Look at verse... Um, uh, end of verse 6. Again, he said, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. Okay, so now we have something going forth. Zechariah sees, I just see something going forth. What is it? It's an ephah. It's some sort of basket. And it's got a lead cover on it. And when you open it up, there's a lady in there. So a woman. And we find out that this woman is... It, who this woman is, really the, the explanation of the vision is found in verse 8. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. So the woman inside this basket is wickedness personified. All right. So this is what the, the vision is. It's basically uh, what God is saying is, is, I'm going to put her in a basket, put a lead cover on it. Okay, think heavy cover, something that she can't get off on her own, and, and I'm going to take that wickedness out from among you, Judah. So, so, so now, I, I'm purging, as we saw in the last vision, I, I, I'm purging the, the, the covenant breakers from among you, and I'm going to remove all wickedness from you. I'm going to send her away in a basket. And just as Evil is often hidden, so is this woman. Until she is exposed, and then the answer in verse 11 is that she will be taken away to Shinar or Babylon, the region of Babylon where wickedness belongs. And so God's removing the sin of the people from, from, from within their midst. And so we could think of it in these terms, that God is removing their sin from them as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verses 11 through 12. He washes away the uncleanness of the people. He, he, Although they're in hot water before them because of their sin, God washes it away and their garments are now cleaned. The last vision is found in, in chapter 6. And we see the vision in verses 1-3. through three. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. And the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot, strong dappled horses. The question is in verse 4. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And the explanation is found in verses 5 through 8. The angel replied, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. These four chariots with four colored horses come between two bronze mountains, we see in verse 1. And they all go in different directions, according to verses 6 and 7. The idea here is that catastrophe will come on, on the enemies of God's chosen people. 
And he, he brings with this final vision that God will destroy their enemies a corresponding vision that helps wrap up this section for us in verses 9 through 15. And it brings us back to the messianic reign of Jesus Christ, who is called in this passage the branch. Verse 9 The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai to uh, Tobijah and Jediah, and you go at the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. So what's happening here is in verse 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, Joshua, this high priest that we already talked about in a previous vision, I think it was the fourth vision, Joshua is given a symbolic crown. And it's as if he, the high priest, is going to reign as a king. And this is symbolic of what we've already talked about, the messianic branch, that Jesus is the branch. And he will build the temple, verse 12. The focal point here is on the restoration of the temple, which is found in verse 13. The, the ruler of this millennial kingdom, this 1,000-year reign, will be both priest and king. Now, now, today, Jesus does not reign on His own throne. Do you realize that? Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not sitting on His own throne. But there will come a day, not too far in the future, when Jesus raptures His people, His church, up to heaven removes them from the wrath to come, the seven-year tribulation that will come on the earth. It will culminate in the battle of Armageddon where Jesus will destroy the enemies along with His armies. And then for the next 1,000 years, Jesus will reign on His own throne as priest and king. The branch. Because He branches out from the people. He is one who has come into this world, who has entered into the human race, become one of us so that He could die for us. So there, there will be a time when, when there will be both church and state joined together in, in uh, bliss, really. So, so in a sense, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church of a church-state idea is correct. The only problem is that they use a, a leader who is a sinful, infallible leader, a pope. You see, this church state can only work when you have an infallible leader. And that's why the Roman Catholic theory that, that is being, uh, be, being uh, promoted is 
is not going to work until Jesus reigns. And, and then at that point, there will be this joining of the church and the state. And it will take place, notice verse 15, when or, or why will this take place? The last verse. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. The, the, the plea, the appeal for the people of Judah at this time was, listen, get back on the right course. Return to God. There are coming some great days when God is going to be there to intervene for you, vision one. And then He will destroy the enemies of yours, vision two. He will restore His chosen people to His favor where you will live in a city without walls. And you will have a high priest, vision four, that will stand in your place and remove your filthy garments and replace them with clean ones. And there will be a, a, a priest, king, deliverer, a Messiah, a branch. Vision 5. Vision 6, God will purge those who oppose Him. Vision 7, wickedness. The woman wickedness will be removed. And God will destroy the enemies of Judah. All the oppression that we as believers face in this life because of the effects of sin and the rule of Satan over the world that we live in, this world which is in rebellion against its Creator, all of those effects will stop one day. The death, the suffering, the, the frustrations, the longing for a better day, that will all go away. When Christ comes, when Jesus reigns as priest and king on His own throne in the Millennial Kingdom, Overt sin will be punished right away and honor will be given to the King for the amazing grace of God in our lives. In the lives of all those believers of all time who have received His grace. And so in light of God's future promises about what God's going to do, because a lot of this is still future for us, how should we live? What should this cause us to do? We look at these these visions, and we see that God's got some promises for Israel and some of them are still future, what should that mean for us? Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In the words of Zechariah, the way that we should live is chapter 2, verse 13. We should live in awe of God, have a hushed silence for His greatness, recognizing our worthlessness. Recognize that, that this will happen for Israel if they obeyed the Lord. Same thing we could say for us. If we obey God, then we prove that we really are a child of God and therefore... How we live matters for eternity. It's not just, hey, I've gotten, I'm all set, I'm okay. No, how we live matters. Recognizing that this world is not our home. Let's notice in chapter 2, the first part of the chapter talks about commands that Paul gives to older men, verses 1 and 2, then older women, verse 3, younger women. He gives commands to... Younger women, verses 4 and 5. And then younger men, verses 6 through 8. 
employees or slaves, verses 9 and 10. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he's talking about citizens to rulers, how they should respond. So we could ask Paul, Paul, why would we act this way? Notice chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. How should we live, Paul? We should live in light of the future. In verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing. With, with that in view, with what Christ is going to do and how He promises to reign as both priest and king, how should we live? He tells us in verses 11 and 12 that because this grace has appeared and because of this future reign of Christ, verse 12, we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And then look over to chapter 3, verse 3. It gives us further motivation for why we should live righteously. Chapter 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But... When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Paul's saying, listen, if you've believed God, if this has happened to you, if you once were hostile towards God, an enemy of His, verses three or verse 3, that you were disobedient, but, but when Christ's kindness came and saved you, not on the basis of what you did, but on the basis of His grace, if that, all that happened to you, then verse 8, I want those who have believed in God to engage in good deeds. This is the response of, of those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ. They recognize what He's done for, for them and they recognize what's going to happen. And, that, and you see a lot of these same themes that come up. That, that, that He's going to wash us or that He has washed us in salvation. That He's taking off our old garments through the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He pours out upon us this branch, Jesus Christ, the One who would be our, our Savior and so if you recognize and believe in the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Messiah, the reign of our priest king, Jesus, then live like it. Because how you live matters to God. And so we need God's grace, not just in salvation, but even as we go forward from there. Let's bow together in prayer and we will be dismissed.
Father, we are grateful for Your grace in our lives. And although there are many things in this passage in Zechariah which we do not fully understand, we recognize that there is a message here for us that You care about Your people and that You want to live among them. And we are humbled at that thought to think that You would come down from Your throne, take time for... Uh, for sinners like us, people who were your enemies, and you spent uh, your son to so that you could display your love on us, even when we were hostile against you. And the sad thing is, Father, that even now that we have been counted as righteous because of Jesus Christ, there are times when we live as if we still are your enemy. We disobey You blatantly and overtly at times because we'd rather have our own way. And sometimes we become so complacent and lazy in this world, we convince ourselves that how we live does not matter as long as we have eternity. But Lord, we know from Your Word, from Titus, from Zechariah, that how we live does matter. And so we ask You that, to give us the strength to have resolve, to, to, to not be complacent or lazy, apathetic in our Christian life, but that we would be working hard at, at building a relationship with You, drawing near to You, returning to You, taking time to listen to You, taking time to talk to You, and then uh, working hard at obeying what You have commanded us. It is the least we can do to offer our bodies as living sacrifices as we read earlier in Romans chapter 12. Because of Your mercy, the least we can do is offer ourselves to You. Give us the grace to obey and, and uh, give us the strength to, to persevere We are so thankful for our Savior, our Messiah. We look forward to the day when He reigns on His own throne. You have provided for Him in Jerusalem. We will come to Him and pay homage to Him. and Where He will uh, rule with a swift hand of judgment on those who oppose Him. We long for that day when all the wrongs will be made right when You will do justice, when You will be just in all the world, and You will seem to be just by all people, and everyone will know that You are a holy and loving and wise and perfect God. We, we look forward to that day with great anticipation. We ask that You would send our Savior quickly. In Jesus' name, Amen.